0: Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 242. My name is Terry Frost, and this time around we're doing very different films once more. The first one's a 1958 movie based on a Tennessee Williams play, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, starring... Paul Newman, Elizabeth Taylor, and Burl Ives. And then we go forward a number of years to 1975 to take a look at a Charles Bronson action film, Breakout Pass, also starring Jill Ireland, Richard Krenner, and a very good supporting cast. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and we'll start talking about horny southern women and Charles Bronson's squinty eyes. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks and is a podcast of classic film appreciation. The rules are simple and two in number. Firstly the movie has to be more than 20 years old and secondly I have to like it. Feedback is very important so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can email me at cultguru at gmail That's cult with a K. Or you can head over to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can like the page there and add your two cents worth. Now, this podcast contains adult language and concepts, so enjoy it. Okay, so how have you all been? Um, The weather's starting to gradually warm up here, which is pretty damn good. Um, It's intermittent, so there's still cold days, but the days are getting longer, and my jasmine jungle in the backyard has flowered. The um, deciduous Manchurian pear tree in the front yard has blossomed and then um, has a whole bunch of leaves on it so things are looking up for the next six months at least. So there have been a couple of things happening as well. Uh, Sally does crafts so uh, one of the things she does is quite rude um, drink coasters which she makes herself and uh, also some fairly rude cross stitch and all sorts of other things like that. So we went to a market to sell her wares The market was attached to Oz Kinkfest, which is a kind of fetish expo, which is in the Collingwood Town Hall. And it was an education. Let's just put it that way. Um, We had a very cramped table, which is a bit unfair, given how much we paid for the table. Though Sally did make a reasonable profit and got some very good kind of customer feedback regarding her coasters and cross-stitch and her jewellery and all the other things she sells. Um, One of the things we had was we were kind of very close up by another table where a guy and a woman were selling chastity belts. Yes, chastity belts for bondage purposes. Apparently a male chastity belt can exist. Mostly it looks like a a kind of steel cage on a a waistband. So basically your nuts and your dick are, are cramped into this little metal cage. Um, And the women's ones, they can be as small as a thin strip of metal. Now, the interesting thing about that was the woman at the store was wearing one of the chastity belts, which was basically a thin strip of metal. Imagine a metal thong, except there's a thin strip of metal down the front. So things were quite visible. And at times, you you kind of... About one quarter of my field of vision when I was sitting at the table was taken up by their table, and so you couldn't not look. Um, It was a very odd thing, and um, we spent the whole day with a woman's um, almost bare genitals quite close by. That was one of the things that was kind of interesting. There was also a number of other things. Um, A naked woman covered in gold glitter was carried around on a sedan chair by four guys, I uh, went to get a couple of coffees and uh, ended up getting slowed down because the crowds were blocking the way and they were all watching a demonstration of Japanese rope bondage, which I am suppose is educational. Um, there were really interesting costumes. Uh, There's a lot of cosplay there. There was a gender-swapped, scantily-clad Where's Wally, which was kind of um, you know, a bold choice. Lots of people in latex and leather. On the other side of us, there was a woman who was selling steampunk top hats and things. And she was very much into leather and was loudly telling everybody who would listen how she was really engaged in educating people about women squirting, Um, which was kind of, you know, fair enough. She she wants to educate people about what she's passionate about. Um, Her son was working with her on the store, which was kind of... um, Again, an interesting thing, uh, he was an adult, it wasn't like he had a three-year-old kid there or anything like that, but uh, the weather was kind of weird, it was cold to start with and it got really, really cold and windy, and so all of the people in Scandi costumes didn't enjoy it as much as they might have otherwise, but yeah, I mean, you've got to kind of stretch yourself now and then, don't you? You have to kind of get out there, outside your comfort zone, and meet people who are living different lives than you do. And that was all cool. Um, There was nothing there that offended me. Last year when we went, there was a woman who had her lips sewn up with thread as a part of a bondage thing. That was a lot more confronting than anything I saw this year. It was a very different way to spend a Saturday. Let's put it that way. And we're not unhappy with the results. Uh, The placing of the store was a little bit difficult and problematic. But apart from that, we had a good time. We met some nice people had some chats with people. Uh, There were a few people there we already knew, which is a bit of a plus. And um, yeah, so that's what we did last Saturday. By the way, I'm moving the podcast to midweek recording because I don't have to do things on the weekend now that I'm not working. And so I can move things to a more convenient time. So if Sally and I want to visit friends or do anything like that on a weekend... I don't have to worry about recording the podcast. So that's the reason this one's a bit late to get me into the middle of the week so I can start that process of podcasting during the middle of the week. So what else is happening? Um, I tried vegan bacon. Uh, I went to a cafe with good friends of the podcast, Sue and Trev, and we ended up having uh, the only thing on the menu that I kind of wanted to have a go at because it was a whole food cafe attached to a whole food shop was the BLT, which had vegan bacon. And to be really honest with you, it wasn't all bad. Um, and it was kind of like a vague memory of bacon. Uh, the texture wasn't quite right, and I don't even know what it was made of, and I'm probably going to Google that at some stage and not be happy about it. But, yeah, um, it's, if you're going to be a vegan, there are worse choices than having vegan bacon. Uh, so it was a new experience, but not a bad one. Uh, They also had some really nice cakes that weren't too sweet. I don't think they put sugar in it. They used natural sweeteners of other kinds. And so there was a mint slice cake, which was pretty good. Uh, Coffee was piss poor and ordinary, but then coffee in most cafes and those sort of places usually is. So what have I been watching? Um, I will watch this because I was going to watch the new version of this. (laughs) Jobber! Yep, the original Johnny Turn and Predator with Arnie in it. We watched that because we went and saw The Predator, which is kind of okay, but not as good as it should have been. There's an article out. Uh, you can Google it if you need to, saying all the changes they made in the, to the third act of uh, The Predator. Shane Black's version of it from this year and they all look like they were much better than what was on the screen uh it's not that the movie was bad it's just that wasn't living up to its full potential i think i'm going to be talking about it on the radio next wednesday so i don't want to kind of take all the juice out of what i want to say but uh if you're interested in the franchise see it you're going to enjoy it for what it is but there is a bit of a lost potential there which is kind of a shame it does set itself up for the very interesting possibilities for some sequels as to whether they will actually happen i don't think they will uh depends on how much money the movie makes of course but i don't think they'll make the sequels as envisioned by the script by shane black and his uh, co-writer so yes that's kind of disappointing but at the time i enjoyed it while i was watching it but later on when you think about it you can see all the kind of bits and pieces that don't work uh, too much studio interference in the filmmaking process, which is something that kills a lot of franchise films these days. But, um, yeah, we'll see what happens with the Predator franchise, whether it does uh, get move forward or whether it stalls again as it has several times before. I also saw another franchise sequel. I watched Oceans 8, the female version of Oceans 11, um, with Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett, Mindy Kaling and all the other um, members of the gang. It kind of was ordinary. It it didn't have quite the artistic style of Soderbergh. I think the script was a little weak at times. Even though it does have a couple of nice reversals in it, which kind of worked out okay, it um, really didn't have that kind of special something that the original... 1960 Rat Pack version had, or the 2000 Soderbergh movies. Um, bit of a disappointment there, but um, it'll probably, probably made money. And uh, it does have some kind of interesting callbacks to uh, the Oceans trilogy that uh, Soderbergh did. But still, a little bit of a missed opportunity. Um, what else have I been watching? Watched a live-action version on Netflix of an anime, Bleach which is about a guy who um, has a lot of spiritual power, let's say, a teenager who goes to school and who can see demons. He accidentally gains the powers of a demon-killing supernatural creature played by a young woman. And there's lots and lots of really cool um, anime and manga-style action with enormous demons which don't look anything like demons do normally. They've got a really distinctive look. And even though it's done on a fairly small scale and the budget obviously was was limited in some ways and a, a lot of computer enhanced graphics were used, it was a, a bit of fun. So I may well go back and try to find the either the manga or the anime versions of Bleach. Uh, yeah, it kind of worked for me. It was um, bubblegum movie viewing in some ways, but again, because I'm going to Japan, I'm interested in... Doing a little more deep diving into pop culture there, and it was fun. It, it works well. There's some really nice sword play in there. Um, there are some a lot of vehicles that get destroyed. A town square gets destroyed, amongst other things. And yeah, it, it kind of did work for me. It was, um, in fact, in some ways, it was more fun than The Predator, which is a little bit of a shame, but um, it did have an audacity of concept and of application of that concept that. Uh, other movies kind of lacked that I've watched lately. Okay, so that's about it for what I've been watching. I'm going to take a break. Now, when I get back, I'm going to do these in reverse chronological order, because I want to, and we're going to take a look at the 1975 Western, written and script-written by Alistair MacLean, starring Charles Bronson, Richard Crenna, Jill Ireland, David Huddleston, Ben Johnson, Archie Moore and a bunch of other people. Break Heart Past, directed... By an underappreciated appreciated film director from uh, the middle of the 20th century, Tom Grice.
1: To begin with, ah! trust no one. Don't. And believe half outside of what you see. <laughs> because nothing is as it appears. And nobody is who they seem to be. You need what Now, from the master of action, suspense, and surprises, Charles Bronson in Alistair MacLean's Breakheart Pass. All that lies between Fort Humboldt and the nearest town is 400 miles of frozen desolation, connected by a thin lifeline of steel. And all that lies between the men of Fort Humboldt and death are the people on this train. <laughs> but are the people on this train on a mission of mercy or murder? Nobody heard anything. Nobody saw anything. Nobody knows anything. The Deacon is right. Dr. Mulliner was murdered. Looks like somebody knocked him out stuck a thin surgical probe up under his wrist. I can't find the Reverend. The telegraph line to Myrtle no longer works. Someone is trying to stop this train.
2: Oh, my God. Hey, we're going backwards.
1: Now we're going to all be on this train for a while. We just might find out what happened before we have to get off. There's a conspiracy on board this train that goes beyond murder, but who is part of it, and who is expendable? The answer waits at Alistair Maclean's Breakheart Pass. And believe half of what you see, because nothing is as it appears, and nobody is who they seem to be. He told us what he's not, but not what he
2: is.
0: wreck Pass is a 1975 action film directed by Tom Grice, a director of whom I've got a lot of fondness. He's the um, father of John Grice, the guy who was in Real Genius with Val Kilmer, playing the guy who lived in Between the Walls. Uh, But Tom Grice also made one of the best westerns of the 1960s, 1970s, probably early 1970s, which was Will Penny with Charlton Heston. He actually got a good um, performance out of Charlton Heston in that movie. And it's one of my maybe top five favourite Westerns of all time. And Tom Grice directed it with sensitivity and with a good eye for location as well and for the character. So um, I've got a lot of fondness for him. He died fairly early and um, this is not one of his better films. It's a pretty standard um, Charles Bronson action film with a couple of interesting features which kind of redeem it somewhat. Having said that, the cast is kind of interesting. We've got Charles Bronson playing John Deacon, uh, ostensibly an outlaw, but we pretty much know right from the start that he isn't. It's telegraphed in various ways, and I don't mind doing a slight spoiler and saying he actually works for the Secret Service. He's arrested by Ben Johnson, uh, playing US Marshal Pierce. Ben Johnson, we remember from the last picture show because he won an Academy Award for it for a very, very short piece of acting. But that's not really uncommon. Judy Dench got it for um, Shakespeare in Love for a not long piece of acting as well. But um, let's see who else have we got in the cast. I got off on a tangent there. Jill Ireland, Charles Bronson's wife at the time, uh, playing Marika, the girlfriend of uh, Richard Crennett's character, Governor Fairchild. She's also the daughter of the person who is running the fort that they're heading towards on the train to, because there's been a diphtheria outbreak break there and a special train is heading up into the remote mountains of Nevada or it might be Idaho to bring diphtheria medicines and, and medical gear to the fort we also have Charles Durning playing a character called O'Brien David Huddleston playing Dr. Molyneux uh, Ed Lauter really interesting character actor playing um an army major Claremont And he gets a nice little bit of acting into this one. Um, Charles Bronson is pretty much casting a check on the acting side of things. Not necessarily on the physical side of things, but definitely on the acting side of things. Um, We've got Bill McKinney, a character actor who's been in any number of westerns playing Reverend Peabody. The main bad guy who kind of gets dealt with very, very cursory kind of manner is played by an actor called Robert Tessier who was an actor and stuntman and had a really imposing physical appearance. Uh, he was a paratrooper in the Korean War, got a silver star and a purple heart. And he, the, probably the thing I remember him most for is a really nice fight scene in The Deep, the movie with Nick Nolte and Jacqueline Bisset, where um, he's in a pitched battle fight. I think with Nick Nolte, and uh, there's some things with uh, outboard motors and all sorts of dangerous stuff like that in there but he had a really nice presence and um, really kind of was often cast for his manner rather than his acting and it kind of really works Uh, though I'm disappointed because I was looking for a nice action scene with Robert Tessier in it and he gets dealt with in a kind of you know off-handed manner that kind of pissed me off i wanted him to go you know toe to toe with bronson maybe that would have been an interesting action scene but we do get some interesting action scenes with bronson which kind of make this work we also have um archie moore as carlos the cook aboard the train and archie moore is an interesting actor he was also um a professional boxer he was the longest reigning lightweight heavyweight champion of all time He had the belt for 10 years between 1952 and 1962. He also did some civil rights work, which was kind of interesting. And he did um, a fair bit of acting as well. There are a couple of things that um, I liked about Archie Moore as an actor. He played uh, the runaway slave Jim in the 1960 Michael Chikerti's version of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and did a really nice job of bringing kind of sensitivity and complexity to a very, very notoriously and historically underwritten character. And in this one, um, he doesn't get too much dialogue. I think he gets like eight lines or something like that, all of which is set in the one go. So the cast is kind of a bit of a sausage part of it. You expect that from any Alistair MacLean adaptation, really. Uh, The only other female character in it is Sally Kirkland in a very, very small role playing a sex worker in a camp um, on the train line. But apart from that, uh, it's kind of a capsule movie in the sense that it's mostly all set on the train, with a couple of exceptions, at the fort and at various stops along the way. And it does, in some ways, parallel murder on the Orient Express, though you could hardly kind of substitute Charles Bronson for Hercule Poirot in any effective way, but they're both set on a train. They're both set on a train that's um, in a very snowy environment and there are murders that occur. So I think that it may have been Alistair MacLean's attempt to parallel Agatha Christie in his own way. Now, Alistair MacLean was kind of an interesting guy in a lot of ways. He was in the Royal Navy in World War II and um, became a leading torpedo operator and an able seaman. He was on some ships uh, that saw a lot of action. And after the Japanese surrender, his ship liberated POWs from Changi Prison Camp in Singapore, where there were a lot of POWs who were Australian. Uh, He went back to university and then started writing novels. Uh, There are any number of uh, Alastair MacLean adaptations that made good films. There was Fear is the Key, The Satan Bug... Golden Rendezvous, nah, not necessarily. Of course, the Guns of Navarone and Force 10 for Navarone. When Eight Bells Toll, which was Anthony Hopkins doing a James Bondy kind of thing. Puppet on a Chain, Caravan to Vacares, Bear Island with Donald Sutherland in it. Um, Breakout Pass, of course. And um, let me see what else we've got. There are a couple of other ones. Nah, pretty much covered it. Yeah. So. Uh, Yeah, Alastair McLean, he was always on the bookshelves when I was a kid. Uh, On any kind of news agency you went to, there were a few Alastair McLean novels, any um, bookstore you went into, there were a whole rows of his novels. They were very, very popular for a long time. Uh, He was a gentleman who suffered from alcoholism, and his later works reflected that in a lot of ways, but he's still well known for more for the movies that were adapted from his work than for the works themselves, which are... Written quite well, but um, he wasn't in love with in-depth character analysis. He was more an action kind of guy. And he was crazily popular with those guys who had lived through World War II and who wanted something to read that kind of reflected well upon their life experiences. I actually picked up this uh, movie on when we were heading over into South Australia a couple of weeks ago. We went over on a mad trip to take a look at a giant lobster. And you can find that on my YouTube channel as well. I should post a link to that in the show notes for this. But on the way, we stopped at a whole bunch of op shops, which Americans know as thrift stores. And I picked up a whole bunch of stuff and they were selling off DVDs for a dollar each. And you can't really go past. If you're kind of dithering about whether you want a movie and it's going for a dollar, you're going to pick it up. I mean, you guys are movie buffs, you know this. And I picked up a whole bunch of different films at ridiculously low prices, pocket change, literally. And uh, there were movies I wanted to take a chance on. And this was one of those breakout pass. I got it for a dollar, I think, in a town called Hamilton, which is not named after a Lin-Manuel Miranda musical. Like a lot of towns in West, particularly Western Victoria, it's kind of um, suffering for a lot from unemployment and other kind of social issues. And so thrift store kind of places are bound where people can get things cheaply. They can get clothing, they can get kitchenware, they can get stuff for entertainment purposes quite cheaply. And so in towns like Hamilton and Horsham and Ararat, which are kind of where people move if they don't have much money, there's a lot of that kind of stuff around. So it's nice to kind of put some money back into the community. I'm wondering out there and picking out all the good movies so they can't watch them. Uh, But anyway, that's how I got to see the film. And uh, there are other Charles Bronson movies I like better. Mr. Majestic I like better. I'm not that keen on the Death Wish stuff because I think it's a little bit too right-wing in the current climate for me to really enjoy in any meaningful way. But um, I really liked... uh, I did see a few episodes once upon a time of a TV series he did in the late 1950s called Man with a Camera, which got a chance for him to do some reasonable acting when he was a bit hungrier than he was when he made break Heart pass and bronson had chops as an actor he really did but i think that once the cash started flowing in his priorities went in a different way and you know charismatic as fuck we can't argue with that but in the mid 70s onwards i think he was cashing a check more than anything and the fact that he had continuing success seemed to surprise him as much as it did anybody else. For this one, he got a million dollars and ten percent of the gross, which was kind of an okay deal given the fact that the movie cost six million dollars, so his end of it was one sixth of the whole budget, and it made two million at the box office. So I don't think he got anything out of the ten percent, but uh, the movie was a kind of financial failure. But this movie is more about the action scenes. There are a couple, There are two main action scenes that really grab you one of which is there's a derailment of a caboose and a railway car full of soldiers, which occurs on a turn on a bridge, and they actually used real rolling stock to do that. It wasn't a model job, and the rolling stock, you know, that's a quite an impressive crash as this stuff falls down an embankment. One of the problems they had is they had a whole bunch of dummies to play the soldiers kind of strapped into the bunks in that rail car because they filmed in the rail car for part of the film and so it was an actual location they ended up trashing by rolling it off a bridge but um, one of the problems was that all of the dummies didn't kind of flop around out of the bunks once they put them in there so when you see the crash of these two railway cars which is quite impressive they had six cameras to, co- to get the coverage they wanted on it the dummies aren't visible so that was a total waste of time and you weren't going to do a retake on that. It was definitely a one-off kind of deal. But it's nonetheless, it's still impressive to see kind of physical effects done on that kind of a large scale. Now, this was the fil- final film participation of one of the great stuntmen of all time, Yakima Kanat, who was 79 at the time. He, did, he was in charge of the second unit direction. His son Joe was one of the stuntmen on it. I'm reading this off Wikipedia. And uh, Knut oversaw that scene where the caboose and the troop carriage crashed into the ravine. Uh, The cars fell 200 feet, which is 61 meters in real terms. And it's just a shame, given this was Knut's last movie. By the way, I've got his autobiography here somewhere in the man cave. Given this was his last film um, participation, it's a shame that the dummy stayed in those uh, close bunks. There are also a lot of action scenes of um, actors running along the tops of railway cars and um, other parts of the train, which work well. You can see Krenner doing it and a few of the other character actors um, running around on on the live rolling stock. I was going to say livestock, but no, it's rolling stock. And that kind of works well. Uh, having the real people doing this stuff works. But the best... Action scene in this whole film, bar none, without any exception, is a fist fight on top of a railway car covered in snow between Charles Bronson's character John Deacon and Archie Moore's character Carlos. Now, Bronson was 53 at the time, Archie Moore was 58, and they actually did all the stunts themselves on top of a moving railway car, punching it out on a snow covered railway car top. So the footing wasn't great. There's a lot of rolling around and kicking and jumping and um, hanging off the side of the train, all done by these two actors. And once you realise that it is done by these two actors, it's a really impressive piece of stunt work. I think that um, in modern times where we have lighter and easier to use cameras, they would have got more angles and coverage on it. And it may have been intensified by that Um, because I'm doing the YouTube videos. I'm looking at things like coverage and angles and (laughs) all sorts of stuff like that. And it actually helps me with my movie watching. So if you want to be more into movie appreciation from the technical side of it, grab a camera or even just a phone camera and start shooting some video yourself. It does give you a perspective that you haven't previously had. And I love doing that. I love the fact that I'm learning more about film by doing rather than by watching and reading. And, uh, this particular scene, I mean, I I saw a couple of angles where I went, well, I would have put a camera there and I would have put a GoPro here or a little 4k, um, action camera there to get the coverage. But, um, given the limitations of the time and we've got to accept those really, it is a good solid action scene and does have some visceral thrills to it. And probably more so then than it has now, we've seen so much action cinema, Now, which does impossible things, um, latest Mission Impossible film being the big example, and in spite of Tom Cruise doing all of the stunts, there is still so much CG taking out of wires and and other bits like that. That uh, an action scene like this one on top of the train in Breakout Pass does get a lot more kudos from me because it was the actors you could see that they weren't strapped to the roof. And they actually did the job. Now, I'm going to have to check out Empire of the North again because I think that there are some good action scenes between Marvin and Ernest Borgnine on that one on the train. So this one isn't anywhere near as visceral as that one is, but it's still a good, honest action scene and filmed within the limitations of um, the technology of the time by two guys in their 50s. You've got to give it props for that. It really does work. Now, Jill Ireland's character is in there f- to give Charles Bronson someone sympathetic to talk to him more than anything else. Um, Ireland was a, a good actor in her time. I think that when she started her career with Bronson and they were in films together, there were a few films like From Noon Till Three where she got to show a bit of acting chops. But I think because uh, her husband's career was in the ascendancy the kind of roles that she got in those films, uh, you know, how much of it was nepotism, how much was it, she was right for the role, is is questionable. And she too died fairly early of cancer. Um, I would have liked to have seen her do more acting roles, but she was blonde and attractive, and at the time, in cinema, that wasn't the kind of person who got really great acting roles in a lot of cases. I think that uh, there, were, there was a glass ceiling, let's say, which didn't give women the roles to let them develop their careers and to develop their skills as well, which is why so many actors went back to doing stage work. Um, and when I talk about Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, I'll talk about that a little bit more. But um, she wasn't a bad actor, but she didn't really get the opportunities that might have enhanced her career. Whether she wanted them or not is another question, too. Uh, some people, it was a job to be comfortable. They do not necessarily do it to get to the top of the career. And who's to know which that is in this case? Uh, but just to kind of finalise on Brekhaar Pass, if you're a fan of action cinema of the time, and you're a fan of Charles Bronson, as many of you are... You're going to enjoy it, but if you're not, um, it's kind of more a middle-of-the-heap action film of the time, and it does have some interesting actors in it. So anyway, I'm going to take a break. When I get back, and we're going to be talking about Tennessee Williams' Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which was one of the few films of the 1950s which has a title that directly references the horniness of the female protagonist. So think about that while I play the trailer.
1: I feel all the time like a cat on a hot tin roof. Then jump off the roof, Maggie, jump off it.
2: The Tennessee Williams Pulitzer Prize winning play unfolds with a shocking impact and uncompromising realism that makes its author the most talked about dramatist of our day. Elizabeth Taylor is Maggie the cat a girl too hungry for love to care how she goes about getting it.
1: I don't mind making a fool of myself over you.
2: Well, I mind. I feel embarrassed for you.
1: Feel embarrassed? But I can't live on this way. Now you agreed to
2: accept that condition. I know I
1: did, but I can't. I can't.
2: Paul Newman vividly plays the emotionally tormented football hero.
1: But how in hell on earth do you imagine you're going to have a child by a man who cannot stand
2: you? Burl Ives is a sensation portraying Big Daddy.
1: I'm gonna pick me a choice woman and I'm gonna smother her and
2: minx and choke her with diamonds. Judith Anderson plays Big Mama. When a marriage goes on the rocks, the rocks are there, right there. Jack Carson gives vigor and color to the role of Gooper, the older brother. I don't give a damn whether Big Daddy likes me or don't like me. The point is i would like to see this place run into the ground by a drunken ex-football hero.
1: You shut up about my husband. You shut up.
2: Madeline Sherwood portrays Sister Woman, the role she created in the play. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is a passionate story of the conflict between people. You and Skipper and millions like you living in a kid's world, playing games, touchdowns, no worries, no responsibilities. An intimate, revealing story of the conflict within people.
1: Maggie. Maggie, the cat is alive. I'm alive.
0: Now, I'm kind of split two ways about Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and I'll tell you why after I tell you about the movie. Um, it was very, very popular in 1958. It cost 2.3 million to make, and it made 11.28 million. So they definitely got their bait back with that fishing expedition. Um, it's based on Tennessee Williams' Pulitzer Prize winning play. And it was one of the top 10 box office films of the year, 1958. Uh, it was actually one of the movies, along with The Hustler and um, Somebody Up There Likes Me, that made Paul Newman a big star. Before that, uh, Four years before that, he was making The Silver Chalice, for instance. So it stars Elizabeth Taylor as Maggie the Cat Pollitt who is the daughter-in-law of Big Daddy, played by Burl Ives, who runs an enormous cotton plantation is very wealthy. He's a self-made man. He didn't inherit the wealth. Paul Newman plays his son, Brick. Judith Anderson plays Big Mama. She's an Australian actress. And she did everything from playing Mrs. Danvers in Hitchcock's Rebecca to playing Big Mama in this. It wasn't a role that she started on the stage, but she makes it her own in a lot of ways. And she even went on to be in Star Trek in search of Spock, playing a Klingon, uh, a Vulcan elder, not a Klingon elder, but a Vulcan elder. So Judith Anderson, great career, very fine actor, probably one of the finest film and stage actors Australia produced in the 20th century. We have Jack Carson playing Gooba, the uh, other son of Big Daddy. And Jack Carson, usually known for lighter roles, but he's quite good Playing Goober. We have Madeline Sherwood reprising the role, reprising the role that she did on stage, as indeed did Burr Lives, playing May Little Sister Woman, uh Pollett, the daughter-in-law of uh, Big Daddy and the wife of Goober. Uh, then we have a couple of other people, Dr. Barr, played by Larry Gates, and Deacon Davis played by an actor called Vaughn Taylor, whose face we know a lot. Again, the cast is fairly small because the movie is based on a stage play and casts on stage plays, particularly of this type, aren't necessarily very large. And as I said before the trailer, this is the only Hollywood movie at the time that directly references the horniness of a female character. And when Maggie says she feels like a cat on a hot tin roof what she's saying is she wants to make love with Brick and Brick doesn't want to make love with her. He's just broken his ankle um, on an athletic field trying to jump over hurdles while he's drunk. He became an alcoholic after his best friend Skipper, with whom he was a college football player, committed suicide under some very ropey circumstances and he doesn't want to make love with his wife which um, is a kind of a red flag in a way to the actual story of the original play, but not as it plays out in the movie. The family's celebrating Big Daddy's birthday. It's his 65th birthday. He's just got out of hospital, away from the um, family plantation for an operation. He's been given the all clear by the doctor and he's back again. The family is all gathering around Gooper and May and their horde of children who are for the most part totally obnoxious, well universally totally obnoxious, are all sucking up to Big Daddy in various ways they're singing songs and doing performances to entertain him, none of which of course entertains him because Gooper is angling to take over the family business when Big Daddy dies, but he's just been given the all clear Uh, but it's more complex than that, of course, because the doctors have lied to him. He's dying of uh, cancer, probably something like intestinal cancer of some sort, and that he's going to have to live with the pain. Uh, the doctor, Dr. Bow, offers him morphine to blunt the edge of it, but being the larger than life force of nature, alpha male that Big Daddy is, he doesn't want to use it. And what he wants is his son, Brick, to take over the business, but Brick is on the piss and is not going to give him an heir because he and Maggie are not making love. And the reason everybody in the family knows they're not making love is that they all live at the plantation, and the wall between um, Brick and Maggie's room and Gooper and May's room is thin, so they, can't, they can hear when they're not making love, in a sense which is quite a controversial thing to say in 1958 in an American cinematic movie. The film's directed by Richard Brooks, who did a whole bunch of other things. Blackboard Jungle in 1955, Elmer Gantry in 1960, and he won the Best Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. He also did In Cold Blood and also Looking for Mr. Goodbar. So he had a great career. Um, he, uh, he had a book that was adapted into a uh, movie in 1947, Crossfire with Burt Lancaster, and, you know, he was a good, solid um, director, though this movie doesn't give him a hell of a lot to work with, in a sense, because apart from a few outdoor scenes, most of it takes place indoors on the plantation, as indeed did the the original stage version, for stage reasons. Now, I took a look at the stage version, and it had a really interesting cast. In fact, a a fantastic cast. We have Barbara Bel Geddes playing Maggie on that one, uh, we have Benghazara playing Brick, which was kind of interesting. Young, hungry Benghazara playing Brick. Of course, you had um, Burl Ives playing Big Daddy. Uh, Mildred Dunnock played Big Mama. Pat Hingle played Goopa, which was kind of interesting. As I said, Madeline Sher- Sherwood played May. Uh, R.G. Armstrong played Dr. Bow in uh, the original stage version. And when Ben Gazzara left the production, Jack Lord from Hawaii 5 played Brick. So it's kind of interesting. The original stage version had music by um, Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry, which was kind of interesting as background stuff. So if there are any time travellers out there, get us a video of the original production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof because it would have been fantastic to see uh, with that particular cast, particularly uh, Gazzara. Of course, and um, Burl Ives. Now, one of the problems Burl Ives had with the movie, apart from the fact that it was a movie rather than a stage version, and he was also well known as a folk singer, apart from all the acting roles, is that they changed a lot of the dialogue from the stage play to the movie because there are things in the dialogue, I'll, I'll leave aside the plot line, but in the dialogue of the movie, that they couldn't do as a movie rather than as a stage play. So that kind of let them mess around with it because censorship in 1958 in cinema was rampant and totally stupid. And even making an adaptation of Tennessee Williams' play and the themes that are covered was considered a risky and challenging and very adult thing to do. Now, here's the reason why I like and dislike this movie. I like it because the acting's fine. Really top draw. Um, Elizabeth Taylor is great as Maggie. Um, Newman, in probably his first kind of complex role, is good as Brick, Burlive's as Big Daddy. You can see him shine through. It's a role he's played dozens and dozens, and hundreds of times. And it feels lived in, in a big way. And even if it is In moments, slightly stagey. I think that the -the over-the-top and larger-than-life character he's playing encompasses that. Judith Anderson's great. Jack Carson's good. Madeline Sherwood, who went on to play um, the mother superior in The Flying Nun, which shows that um, a jobbing actor has to take all sorts of roles to go from Tennessee Williams to The Flying Nun. is an interesting career arc in a lot of ways. She also did a lot of uh, civil rights and feminist stuff, In her later life, she was actually arrested for six months on a civil rights march in the 1960s, Madeline Sherwood. And she went on to become um, a spokesperson for feminism in the 1970s. She had some meetings and became a friend of Gloria Steinem's. And she went on to particularly um, champion feminism for older women. So Madeline Sherwood, even though I first knew her as a nun in The Flying Nun, Uh, I've got a lot of respect for her and the more I looked into her life she did a lot of good things and really was ahead of her time in a lot of ways and did a number of fantastic stage roles as well she um, was in Sondheim's Do I Hear a Waltz for instance so anybody that's in a Sondheim play I've got a soft spot for with one or two exceptions I'll leave aside Tim Burton adaptations of Sondheim musicals for the reason that they're not very good but the, the ensemble works. Now, I took a look also, and I shouldn't mention this before I go on to why the movie doesn't work, At some of the other people who played the roles. Next year, there's a Sydney Theatre Company production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, with Hugo Weaving playing Big Daddy, Pamela Rabe's going to be playing Big Mama, and Maggie the Cat's going to be played by an actor called Zara Newman which is kind of interesting. Um, I'm not sure that uh, Hugo Weaving has the same physicality for the role, but I think that he can carry it because it's Hugo Weaving, and particularly on stage, he's a fantastic actor. The interesting thing about Zara Newman playing the role of Maggie is Zara Newman is uh, of mixed race. She was born in Jamaica of, of mixed parentage, and so that will then bring into the role of Maggie the fact that she's married into this white wealthy southern family the fact that she's a woman of color makes that a more interesting and complex character just by the very nature of it so that's going to be one that if I was in Sydney and I had the money I would definitely go and see because um, I think it's got great potential but getting back to other people who have played the role or should I say roles in the original West End London cast we had Kim Stanley play Maggie Paul Massey, who was in the two faces of Dr. Jekyll for Hammerfilms, played Brick. Leo McKern played Big Daddy. And a shout out to Carrie McKern, uh, Leo's niece, who we will have to get on the podcast. Uh, let's see who else we've got in there. There, was, there have been a number of adaptations with some interesting actors in it. There was a TV version with Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner and Laurence Olivier playing Big Daddy. Maureen Stapleton playing Big Mama. There was another 1984 TV version with Jessica Lange, Tommy Lee Jones, Rip Torn, Kim Stanley, David Dukes and Penny Fuller in it. And there was a Bollywood movie recently called Kapoor and Sons, which was inspired by Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which is kind of interesting. Um, Yeah, so it's definitely a dramatic property that has a lot of legs to it. Um, But the reason I don't like the movie is that the censorship that they used in 1958 weakens the motivation of one of the characters. The reason why Brick is alcoholic is his best friend committed suicide and he didn't help him. That's the way it plays in the movie. The reality in the play is a lot different and it goes to one of Tennessee Williams' themes for the play. Um, Skipper was in love with Brick in the original play And Brick had feelings for him, and Brick denied his feelings for him. And so Skipper, trying to prove that the rumours about them was untrue, tried to make love with Maggie in a hotel room in Chicago and wasn't able to do the deed. And he contacted Brick and confessed to Brick his feelings for Brick. Brick rejected him, and Skipper committed suicide, even though it was obvious from the way the play rolls through that Brick had similar feelings for Skipper. None of that's in the movie. The movie doesn't even touch on the possibility of a same-sex attraction between Brick and Skipper. And this was one of the themes that was crucial to Tennessee Williams at the time, that uh, addressing homophobia, to a certain extent, was one of the things he wanted to do. The other one was mendacity, which I've looked up because it's not a word that... Gets much coverage these days. Mendacity is the fact of condition of being untruthful or dishonest. And also a deceit, a falsehood or a lie. So, Mendacity is a big theme in this one. Brick's lying to Maggie about things. Maggie ultimately resolves the plot of both the play and the movie by telling Big Daddy a large lie. Big Daddy is being lied to about his medical condition. He lies to Big Mummer about his infidelities in the past and there's a scene where he thinks he's being fixed by the Doctor where he talks about how he's going to take a mistress and what he's going to do with her. There's, that uh, part is still in the movie from the play. And uh, there are the lies Goober and his family tell about loving Big Daddy when all they want is his money and his influence and they want the business. So there's a big circle of lies going on here. And, of course, Big Daddy lies about loving his family. He doesn't. He sees them more as a possession than he does as a family. Um, In the movie, there's a kind of um, redemption arc in that where he and Brick kind of reconcile down in the basement of the house in a lot of ways. But that was kind of a, a soft thing that was done for movie audiences in the 1950s. The idea that you could end the movie not, you know, hating your father and having your father hate you, which is something with which I have a certain familiarity, isn't something that audience and movie studios in particular wanted in the 1950s. So they had to have that redemption arc in there, whereas the truth is a lot more complex in the play itself, where... um, Brick does end up inheriting for because of Maggie's lie and that doesn't solve all the problems in the way it does in the movie it means that the mendacity and the lying and the deceit is going to continue until Maggie makes that lie true and that's kind of um, an interesting way for the play to end and a complex way for the play to end which The movie just doesn't have. Um, It it kind of lacks an emotional honesty and a truthfulness. Uh, In fact, the movie itself is mendacious in the fact that it doesn't address um, the attraction between Skipper and Brick, which is clearly one of the main themes of the movie and is clearly the source of Brick's alcoholism because a lot of closeted gay men who couldn't admit their own feelings to themselves. In the time Tennessee Williams was working it, and particularly writing the play, did self-medicate with alcohol, and may and indeed Williams himself was an alcoholic, and so he was probably trying to address that in some way through um, the play. And the play, of course, won a Pulitzer because it was important. It talked about things that weren't talked about and did it in an interesting way. It had a strength and an honesty about it that a lot of plays at the time and a lot of entertainments at the time didn't really address. And Tennessee Williams said something really interesting about the play, which it kind of blew me away a bit. And Williams said Cat and Hot Tin Roof was a play which says only one affirmative thing about man's fate, that he has it still in his power not to squeal like a pig, but to keep a tight mouth about it. It shows a very 20th century attitude towards death that you're supposed to keep quiet about it and not be honest about it. Um, I kind of disagree with Williams on that. I'm sure there are any number of other subjects I disagree with Tennessee Williams on, but that was his attitude and that was the attitude that informed the creation of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Oh, by the way, there was an all black production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof done on Broadway in, in 2008. Dig this, James Earl Jones playing Big Daddy, Terence Howard making his Broadway debut as Brick, Felicia Rashad playing Big Mama, Annika Nonny Rose as Maggie, and Lisa Arundel Anderson as May. That would have been a fantastic one. There was actually a production in London's West End, Adrian Lester played Brick, which was kind of cool, and uh, it received a 2010 Laurence Olivier Award for Best Revival of a Play. So this particular production of of, work has survived well over 60 years as a viable and still kind of relevant piece of theatre, which is very, very cool. But leaving aside those qualms that I have about uh, the adaptation as a movie and the cutting the nuts off the original uh, play, to do it. The acting is good. Uh, Burl Ives in particular I I like as Big Daddy. He has a vitality about it. It seems to be the role that he was born to play in a lot of ways. I do like Judith Anderson's um, Big Mama as well. I think that um, I'm I'm never really warmed to Elizabeth Taylor as an actor in a lot of things. Um, She gets a bit shouty and there's a lack of kind of nuance to the way she delivers a line that i find kind of limiting on the other hand paul newman as brick is really really good um jack carson as i said lighter roles for the most part but in this one he he really does bring it madeline sherwood's fantastic and it's good to kind of go back and revisit these adaptations just to see where things were cut out and to see and to remind ourselves why censorship is such a bad idea and why removing things from um, original texts doesn't work well in the long run. I mean, there are racist things that are um, done in works that you remove. Uh, as I said, the adventures of Mark Twain when I was talking about Breakheart Pass, you've got to remove the N-word from Jim's name because that then becomes a problem for a whole range of reasons. And... Um, yeah there are are reasons for doing that that are perfectly valid but on the other hand in this one the core was ripped out of the play in some ways and i find that kind of sad now i picked up a cat in a hot tin roof really cheaply down at jb hi-fi um on blu-ray even uh which is kind of cool every now and then jb hi-fi does 20 percent off dvds and blu-rays and it's a throwing chum into the water as far as i'm concerned and i'll come around and gobble up everything i can possibly gobble up about it uh but yeah i'm I'm glad i watched the movie i'm glad i reviewed it for the podcast but i am really aware of how the themes changed because of that horrible censorship business but anyway that's about it this time around it's time to knock 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 that naughty clock that says it's time to go Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, I will be back with a Martian drive-in podcast and two pieces of feedback next time around. Uh, uh, Gary and um, a good friend of the podcast, Nathaniel, have given feedback, so I will put those in the next time around. But anyway, um, look after yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Watch any damn movie you like, even hentai if that's your thing. And I'll be back really soon. I really appreciate you listening. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying the podcast again. And I'm enjoying the YouTube channel as well. So check out the YouTube channel. If you do watch the YouTube channel and want to give feedback, definitely put the comments and the thumbs up on the YouTube channel itself because it helps out. I just did a YouTube video about my top five Predator sequels that I made up. I woke up one morning with a whole bunch of ideas for Predator sequels on it, so you might want to check that out. There's some really fucked up shit there. But anyway, take care of yourselves. I care about you, and keep going until the next time we do it this. And by the way, I've redone the credits. Ta-da! I said I've been going to redo the credits for months now. I just redid the credits. So here are the updated credits for the podcast to thank, appreciate, and recognize the Patreon subscribers who keep this thing going. Here are the Credits for Paleo Cinema podcast and Martian Driving podcast done in a style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris the Musical Director, Jan the Dialect Coach, Arm and Our Key Grip, Matt the Rattlesnake Wrangler Elaine our Scientific Advisor Julia our Casting Director Chris our Camera Operator Christopher our Gaffer Miss Jane our Wardrobe Mistress Tansy our Foley Artist Alyssa our Location Scout Mark our Second Unit Director Paul our Special Makeup Effects Director Tammy the Donut Wrangler Tim, our New York Unit Director. Rabbi Steve, our Spiritual Advisor. Uh, Steve Sullivan, our Director of Monster Effects. Dylan, our Goat Wrangler. Eric, our Set Security Lead. Richard H., our Set Photographer. Mark D., our Extra. And David L., our Extra. Kerry H., who is the Accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CGFX technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast.